if you throw a triathlete who's done maybe one sprint into an Ironman race, no, they're not going to find flow. That's going to be panic. That's going to be pure suffering. However, if you give them something that's in their growth zone, we call it, so a little bit outside of their comfort zone, that challenges them but doesn't destroy them, (laughs) then yes, there is a chance that they can get into flow. Hello, I'm Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, and this is the February 9th, 2024 edition of the TriDoc Podcast, coming to you, as always, from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. We have a couple of interesting pieces of news in the world of triathlon coming from the competing industry leaders in long-distance triathlon in the last couple of weeks, and I wanted to cover that before we get into the heart of the show. The first of these comes from the world of the Ironman Group, specifically World Triathlon Corporation, who announced that Scott DeRue would be taking over as their CEO, replacing the retiring Andrew Messick. Scott DeRue comes from the luxury fitness brand Equinox, and he brings with him an endurance sport passion as well as an endurance sport background, although he has never participated in a triathlon, certainly not a Ironman uh, distance event, although he says in the press conference that he gave to journalists that he does intend to participate in one in the near future. This is seemingly a not particularly controversial or not particularly I don't know, out there kind of choice for the new CEO of the sport. He seems very much in kind of the mold of Andrew Messick. He's a business guy. He's a guy who's worked with venture capital companies before. And as we all know, and potentially not too excited about, Ironman has been owned by venture capital kind of companies for the past almost a couple of decades now. And it's because of this that Ironman has both succeeded as a business, but also kind of alienated a lot of its customer base because it's been so focused on profits. And Andrew Messick has made no secret of the fact that, look, Ironman is a business. And after all, as a business, it is beholden to its owners and therefore has as its main goal really to generate profits for those owners. And Scott DeRue seems like someone who's coming in kind of in the same kind of mold. However, he does have in his background a very solid kind of base developing and delivering a customer-focused experience through his luxury brand that he did with Equinox. So I think that as athletes, we can hope and maybe even expect that this will maybe turn the page a little bit. I have always felt that Andrew Messick did the best that he could in the situation that he was in, that being that, you know, he was being squeezed by the owners to continually get more and more profits for the return on investment that these venture capitalists were making in Ironman. And he was also in a very difficult situation with respect to the pandemic and everything else that that brought with it. However, I think he could have done a much better job, especially with communication and with allowing athletes to understand what was going on behind the curtain. With a new CEO, someone who apparently has done a really good job in providing excellent customer-focused quality products, maybe we can hope that all of the good things that Andrew brought to Ironman 
can now be expanded with some of the things that Andrew had as shortcomings. Maybe we can hope that Scott is now going to come to the fore and say, hey, these are the things that I think that we can do better in order to drive profits even higher. Because let's face it, if you make your customers happy, your customers are more likely to return, you're more likely to get new customers in the door, and therefore your product is going to be ever more successful. So I think that turning the page, having a new chapter with Iron Man, having this new CEO, we can all keep our fingers crossed and hope, be hopeful that this is going to represent a new opportunity for Iron Man. And for all of us as athletes who love the brand and who love participating in those races, we can hope that we can see new and better things coming in the years to come. I wouldn't get too excited that things are going to change dramatically in the first year. We have to give this man the opportunity to get his uh, feet under him and learn the business and understand uh, exactly what he's getting into before we can hope to see appreciable changes. But perhaps for late 24 and certainly into 25, I think we can all hope to see something tangible that will impact us all. The second piece of news, which definitely impacts the 24, because it's something that is going to have a big impact on the calendar of races, is the introduction by the Professional Triathletes Organization of their world tour. At long last, this is something we've been waiting for for a long time. And along with their introduction of their world tour is their rebranding of the series as the T100 World Triathlon Tour. That's a mouthful. I'm not sure they got the right marketing guys in the room to come up with such a unwieldy name, but there it is. Uh, 100, of course, referring to the distance of their races. We know that uh, Ironman had great success in calling their races the 70.3, which is 70.3 miles. PTO, being more of a European brand, has adopted the 100-kilometer distance, and so therein lies the naming of their races as T100. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of the name, but whatever, we'll see what happens. Their race series includes the Miami race, the Clash Daytona. It includes the uh, previously announced race in Henderson, Nevada, as well as the races in Singapore and Ibiza that I mentioned on the previous episode. There are still a couple of races that have not been announced, including one in California, which we can only assume is going to have a tie-in with the Malibu Triathlon, and finally a grand final, which is going to be their end of season, assuming presumably some kind of championship race at the end of the year, which again, is still not been announced in terms of both location and date. So uh, still... uh, a little bit up in the air. The PTO coming across as maybe a little bit disorganized in all of this, but uh, at least now we have some sense of what's going to be happening. And along with this announcement came some announcement by some high-profile athletes, specifically Lucy Charles Barkley, who has stated that she will not be returning to defend her Ironman World Championship in Nice, rather opting to go for the T100 series, really all in on that. Now, I'm not really sure what that says about Lucy and her inability to compete on a course that's as difficult as Nice is versus just her wanting to kind of go all in on the PTO's series because she's been an ardent supporter of the PTO since it came out. She obviously feels that there's a a better opportunity for her to cash in doing these shorter races, uh, maybe taking a year off from doing a a longer distance event like an Ironman and then returning in 2025 and going back to the full distance and going back to Kona where she obviously has had good success. 
Alternatively, I suppose an argument could be made that she doesn't feel like she can compete on a course that's as difficult as Nice. I don't necessarily think that's true. She has shown that she is very proficient on uh, challenging bike courses. So I'm not really sure exactly what is motivating her to dedicate herself exclusively to the T100. My guess is it's more about preservation, self-preservation, because she is very injury prone. We've talked about that before here. And I know that we're unfortunately probably going to have to talk about that again because she is an injury prone athlete. And I think that we are going to see that come up the more and more she races longer distances. So it is very possible that just dedicating herself to shorter course racing in the form of half Ironman type distance, she may feel like that gives her the best chance of staying healthy for the full year and then coming back in 25 to do the longer distance. That's one possibility. The other possibility just is, as I said, that she has an affinity for the PTO, wants to see it succeed, and maybe they're paying her very generously. Who knows? There are other athletes who've said they're in for the T100 series, including Paula Finley. Paula has not raced the full Ironman distance, so I'm not that surprised. And then there are some other high-profile athletes who are still sitting on the sidelines, haven't fully committed, the likes of Christian Blumenfeld, for example, still not deciding or at least not stating publicly whether or not he will race Ironman or the T100 series and several others who we're still waiting to see Sam Long clearly committing to the T100 though I won't be surprised if he shows up in Kona as well. Time will tell as to how this series uh, progresses, if this is a one-year deal or if this will continue into 25. I think that we need to see much better organization and much better clarification from the PTO well in advance as to what their dates are and what their actual locations are for this to actually gain traction, especially with age groupers, if age groupers are going to sign up and participate. There's no question that age groupers are looking for an alternative to Ironman, and if the PTO could get their act together in a way that demonstrates that they were going to be there for athletes, that athletes would sign up. Personally, I have yet to be really enthralled by the courses that they've developed. And so I have not joined or signed up for a PTO event, although many athletes I know who have done so have said that they've really enjoyed those events and said that they have been events that they would return to. So I hope for everyone involved that the PTO can succeed. One thing I will note, however, is that when I spoke to Sam Renouf on this podcast a couple of years back, he was quite clear that the PTO was not a competitor to Ironman. He viewed the PTO as an ally to Ironman. He did not feel that they should be working in the same space, but rather that the PTO would be a means for triathlon to advance because it would allow for professionals to show up at races together and highlight and and enhance the profile of the sport. He didn't view the PTO so much as a rival organization. And yet, it's very clear as time has passed that the PTO is kind of trying to fill that space because they are competing directly against the Ironman events. Their race in October is pretty much abutting against Kona and there are they're, they're trying to compete for viewership, I suppose. I, it's it's kind of hard to know exactly what their strategy is because they've been kind of scattershot in their planning and in their publicity. So, I don't know. We'll see how it all plays out. Uh, I, I think there is room enough for both of these organizations to succeed and to thrive. It'd be nice if they got along together and if they actually figured out a way to coexist, but uh, that so far has not been the case. 
Right now, Iron Man Corporation continues to have the upper hand. They are much better ensconced within the sport. They have a much better organization. They just seem on the surface to be better put together and better run. So we'll see if the PTO can can shed their image of disorganization and chaos and actually get things together over the course of 24 and prove to be a viable organization that athletes can count on going forward. Let's see. On the show today, we have a couple of interesting segments for your listening pleasure. The first of those is the medical mailbag, upon which I am joined by my friend and colleague Juliet Hockman. And today, we are going to be discussing a recent article that was published on the value of intermittent fasting and endurance sport. This is something that I have talked about in the past, and there has been kind of renewed interest of late. You may have seen the article that came out uh, probably a month, maybe six weeks ago, where the coach of one Tade Pogaccia really threw this whole practice into question. So we're going to take a look at that study and several others and uh, give you an update on the status of this idea of training on low carbs and on intermittent fasting in general. And that's coming up in just a bit. Later, I'm joined by another of the Triathlete Magazine writers, someone who I have met through my writing for that magazine, Dr. Daya Grant. Dr. Grant is a certified mental performance consultant. She's a neuroscientist, as well as a yoga and meditation teacher, and she helps athletes train their mind for elevated performance. She joined me to talk about mindset, specifically the clutch mindset, as well as the flow state that we can attain when racing. We talked about how we can get there, how we can aspire to do it more often, and that's all coming up on the interview segment in just a short while, and I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get to all of that, though, I want to take my customary time just to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this program who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they want to help and support this podcast, and I am forever indebted to all of them for doing so. If you would like to join the ranks of these esteemed members of this group, I would be so thankful. You can do so by going to www.patreon.com forward slash podcast, and you could see the different tiers of of support that are available. I will tell you that for those of you who decide that they want to join at the $10 per month level, you will get a lovely thank you gift in the form of a TriDoc podcast running hat. Even if you don't choose to support at that level, though, you will have available to you bonus episodes that come out at about a frequency of one every month or so. But regardless of whether or not you decide to support, you have my thanks just for considering and for being a listener of this program. It's time again for the medical mailbag, which means I am joined by my friend and colleague, Juliet Hockman. Juliet joins me from Port Hood River in Oregon. Juliet, how are you? I am great. How are you? I, I am well. I am well. I'm looking forward to heading out that way later on this year when I'll be doing, what, two races up in your area, right? I know. I get to see you twice. This is super exciting. Oregon and Eastern Washington. Yeah, two two visits to the Pacific Northwest is going to be fun times. I'll actually know where Hood River is by the time we're done you with sure those will. two races. That'll be good. Yep. Before that, though, we have uh, another question that was submitted by a friend of ours, friend of the podcast, someone we know well. So why don't you uh, let us know what we're going to be talking about today? So this question comes to us from professional triathlete Matt Sharp, who's also the editor of the Tempo News. There you go. A little plug for you, Matt. Really great newsletter that comes to your inbox twice a week. Great guy, one of our colleagues at Life Sport, and he's really curious about this very specific type of carbohydrate restriction that was 
utilized by Team Sky with some publicity, but has recently been looked at more carefully by Tata Papacha's coach. And Jeff's going to both explain to us a little bit about what makes this approach different from the other ones we've talked about previously in the podcast, and also why now there's some controversy about it. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of back and forth that's been going on in the world of professional cycling, but it has a lot of relevance to triathlon, as you're going to see. Partly because we've talked about a couple of these dietary strategies before, but also because the evidence that actually supported this idea was in part came from the world of triathlon. So let's just talk a little bit about what we're, we're talking about here. Uh, essentially, this is a concept that is called periodized carbohydrate diet. And what that means is. It's not so much that you're restricting carbohydrates, you're actually taking the same amount of carbohydrates that you would take in a normal type of diet for endurance athletes, but you are periodizing it or you are taking your carbohydrates in a very specific kind of way at different times of the day throughout your training cycle. And when this was first developed by the boys out of Team Sky, what they purported at the time was that this was leading to their tremendous successes at the multi-day tours like the Tour de France with first Bradley Wiggins and then Chris Froome. Hard to say whether, you know, the idea of marginal gains, which was the concept that Dave Brailsford brought to cycling, was that, you know, if there was no one thing that really was the major thing that led to their success, but rather everything they did had these tiny little marginal gains. And if you put them all together, you you had the final result, which was this major success that they got. And whether or not this dietary strategy of periodizing their carbohydrate intake actually contributed in any major significant way is unclear, but they felt that it did play a big role. So what is this notion? What is it supposed to do? Essentially, there are a few different strategies to periodizing your carbohydrate intake, and they all kind of push towards the same idea. And basically what it is doing is it is trying to get you to exercise in a state where your glycogen stores are very low. And the idea there is that if you are relying less and less on glycogen and less and less on carbohydrate, you are going to force your muscle cells to upregulate specific genes that are necessary for different types of processes to take place in order to make use of different kinds of fuels. And therefore, you are going to teach your muscle cells to be more efficient, making use specifically of fatty acids. It's this whole idea of allowing yourself to become fat adapted. Now, we've talked about fat adaptation in the past, specifically when we've talked about things like the keto diet. Keto diet is an incredibly popular, I hate to say it, but it is very much a fad diet. The keto diet is one of these things that, that came into vogue in the 60s. The first time it came about, it was called the Atkins diet. It's, it, it's, it's had various different iterations, but right now it's all the rage is the keto diet. And it basically means very, very restricted carbohydrate intake. And you're basically living off of ketone bodies as well as fatty acids and trying to get your cells to learn to use those fuels as their primary substrate. And as we have seen when we've talked about keto diet in the past, does it work to help you lose weight? Yes. Does it work to keep you keep that weight off? No. Does it work to help endurance performance? Unequivocally, 
No, it does not. In fact, it impairs endurance performance, especially when you reintroduce carbohydrates. How do you feel about so that, keto Jeff? diet, yeah, right now, right? <laughs> Eat <laughs> and I've had people. several guests, yes, several guests on the program who will back me up on this. All right. There are a couple of other ways you can do this, though. You don't have to be quite so restrictive as the keto diet. Intermittent fasting is another one I've talked about. Intermittent fasting has some interesting evidence behind it. Intermittent fasting is basically, it can be done a couple of different ways. Some people will fast for 24 hours and they'll eat for 24 hours. The most common way to do intermittent fasting is to restrict your eating to usually a four to six hour window, and then you fast for the rest of the day. Intermittent fasting has been shown to be a quite effective way to lose weight. It has been shown to be a quite effective way to keep weight off. It has also been shown to be quite effective at keeping you from being able to perform endurance work. Again, for the same reason as the keto diet, you're just not fueled. We've had dietitians and nutritionists on this program who will talk at nauseum about how you need to have fuel in order to perform. And as with the keto diet, the intermittent fasting is kind of the same thing. If you're trying to operate at a high level of endurance capacity, if you want your VO2 max to be 60 to 70%, which is what we typically want for just any kind of endurance workout, it's very hard to do that if you've been fasting. But no question, intermittent fasting is an effective strategy for losing weight. It's also a pretty effective strategy for keeping that weight off. Okay, so those are the things we're not talking about <laughs> for these research papers. Instead, we are talking about getting yourself into a glycogen-depleted state. So how do you do that? There's two popular ways of doing that. One of them is training multiple times a day, where the first workout that you do tends to be fueled and with glycogen stores where you would normally want them to be, which is essentially pretty full. You do your workout, you complete a pretty hard workout, two to three hours long, you've depleted all your glycogen. And then after the workout, you refuel with high protein, high fat, no carbohydrates. And the idea there is you're taking in calories, but you're not replenishing your glycogen. And then you go back and you do a second hard workout, but you're doing that second hard workout with no glycogen in having been replenished. So that's one of the popular ways. The other way, and this is the way that has been much more studied, it's the way that is more commonly done, and it's the way that Sky used to incorporate as part of their training, is called sleep low. And what sleep low does is it, workouts would be done in the evening before going to bed. They would do a hard workout in the evening. They would then go to sleep and they they wouldn't refuel after that workout. And so the the nature of the workout followed by sleeping for six to eight hours would result in a complete loss of glycogen. They would get up the next morning and they would have to then eat a, a breakfast with protein, with fats, low carbohydrates. They would do a hard workout again, again with low glycogen stores. And then after that, only then would they start refueling with carbohydrates. and. It's interesting because a study was done on, of all people, triathletes in 2016. And it's pretty rare that I come across studies that are actually on triathletes specifically. But this was one in 2016. It was called Enhanced Endurance Performance by Periodization of Carbohydrate Intake, Sleep Low Strategy. And it was really, really interesting because they looked at 21 male triathletes, so only men, and uh, these were pretty well-trained triathletes. Uh, they weren't professionals, but they were pretty well-trained. 
and they were uh, working out at Olympic distance type of uh, training program. And it was found that uh, when they broke these uh, triathletes into two different groups and they had one group working at a high carbohydrate availability pretty much all the time, compared that to a group who were, again, doing this workout in the evening, not refueling, sleeping low, then doing a workout in the morning. They actually found over a period of, let me see, how long was this? I believe this was a three, a five week. It was a five week program. And then after five weeks, they found a pretty significant improvement in run times. They found that there was a three minute improvement for the 10K run, which that, I mean, that's, that's huge, right? I mean, who wouldn't want a three minute improvement over their run? They also found that on the bike test, uh, that RPE was significantly decreased. So the, the, uh, help me out here, Juliet, RPE, it's a rate of perceived perceived exertion. exertion. Yes, exactly. So the, the perceived exertion of the, the athletes perceived that they were not working quite as hard in order to uh, cover the distance in the same amount of time, suggesting that the athletes had a sense that they were able to do so without working quite as hard if they did this experimental diet. So I, I want to point out a couple of things that are really important. Number one, the athletes in both of these groups took in the same amount of calories and interestingly took in the exact same amount of carbohydrates. They just did so at different times. Okay. So they were all well-fueled. They all had the same amount of carbohydrates. They just restricted their carbohydrate intake. That's what we're talking about here with this periodization of carbohydrates. So it's not keto, right? Keto is no carbohydrates. These athletes were taking adequate carbohydrates. They were just timing their carbohydrates in such a way that they would still end up with very low glycogen level when they did very intense training. So very interesting study. And it sounds great if it's true. And certainly our our friends over at Sky, Chris Froome, Bradley Wiggins, seem to have had great success. The only problem is since 2016, not a single study has been able to reproduce these results. Okay, I have one question about this study. Did they talk at all about whether using this particular approach had athletes lose weight overall because that's one of the things that people talk about with the other two right the keto and the intermittent fasting as you introduce the program but did the study talk at all about weight loss as as to whether this was just good for performance or whether it was also good for weight loss yeah it's a great question uh body mass and body fat mass were reduced okay in response to altering the timing of carbohydrate intake during the three-week training block. So there was a decrease in body mass and in body fat in both groups, but it seemed to be slightly more in the group who was doing this cycling or, or the periodization sleep low idea, but it wasn't dramatic. It just seemed to be. So when you think, when you look at their main no, it's uh, sorry. I said five weeks. It's uh, it was a, this study was a three week. It's the other study we're going to talk about later. That's five weeks. Okay. So I apologize for that error. But but this was their main findings in this triathlon study were number one that ten kilometer run performance was improved. Number two, submaximal cycling efficiency was enhanced and ratings of perceived exertion were lower. And then number three, body mass and body fat mass were reduced in that experimental group. But again, it wasn't dramatic okay. in terms of a comparison. So good question. Okay. Okay. So again, uh, you know, these are very, very enticing results, certainly backing up what uh, the, the guys at Team Sky were doing. 
However, as I said, unless you can reproduce results of a study, it really, really takes away from the validity of that trial. And especially in a small study of only 21 athletes, it, it's so hard to know whether or not a small study's results and findings are really the truth unless you can then reproduce it in some other group of people. And nobody else has been able to reproduce it, which brings us to the current study, which is co-authored by a, a host of individuals. But the one we're interested in is Inigo, in, I can't say his name, I'm sorry, I think it's a Spanish name, but it's Inigo San Milan, who is Tadej Pugacha's coach. And he has been quite vocal in his kind of rebuffing of the sky diet. He, he believes that we need carbohydrates, we should not be periodizing them. We, he thinks that your ability to perform over a long distance race is enhanced by having repleted glycogen stores before you start. And you know, we look at Chris Froome, we look at Bradley Wiggins, these were generational athletes. But we look today and we see Pogaccia, we see Van Aert, we see Vingegaard. I mean, these are, again, generational athletes, and apparently none of them are doing this periodization. They are all drinking tart cherry juice at the finish, but they are also <laughs> taking a lot of carbohydrates right. before. So this is a study that, as you said, Matt sent along to us, and it's titled A Five-Week Periodized Carbohydrate Diet Does Not improve maximal lactate study state exercise capacity in well-trained cyclists compared to a high-carbohydrate diet. So there you go. Title says it all. They went to my title writing school. They told us exactly what we needed. But let's just dive into it a little bit. Essentially, what they did is they took, again, a small group of cyclists, but still took 17 highly trained men. Again, only men in this study. I, I think the reason we're seeing these studies continue to only be one gender. I think it's really unfortunate, but I kind of understand it a little bit. You're trying to eliminate anything that could skew your results, anything that could make it hard to interpret re your results. And we, we just know men and women are different. And if there's going to be a, a gender difference, you kind of want to eliminate that right up front. I think as far as I'm concerned, I would want to see the study done in women as well to let me know, is there a difference between men and women? But that being said, that's kind of an aside. It, it, this study was only on men. So nine were assigned to a carbohydrate periodiz periodization group, the other eight to a high carbohydrate group. Again, in this study, just like the other, everybody had the exact same number of carbohydrates, the exact same number of calories. They just took them at different times. And they had them all do this maximal lactate steady state test, where basically it's a time trial where they're doing it at a maximum intensity that they are generating a steady state of lactate throughout. And what they found was, after going through five-week period, this was the five-week study, they went through a five-week period, there was absolutely no difference between one group and the other. They did show, biochemically, that yes, the group that went through this periodization with carbohydrates had cellular markers that showed, yeah, they had upregulated the genes they had changed their cellular processes so that they were metabolizing fat better than the athletes who hadn't done it, but didn't make a difference, did not make a difference. Because I think, as I've said before, our bodies just prefer carbohydrate, especially at high intensities. And, you know, you can be fat adapted all you want. If your body's going to prefer to go the way of carbohydrates in order to generate the most energy, that's what it's going to do. It's going to default to that. So I, I think this is a really interesting study that kind of 
I don't think it's it's super surprising, but at the same time, very, very well done and points out yet again that carbohydrates are king. Let's point out something that's a little bit more subjective. If your job is to win races, right? Like these professional cyclists or, you know, maybe, I don't know, anyone in that highly esteemed athletic realm. Yeah. Maybe, but if you're like the 99%, the rest of us are in and you've got to do a hard workout and then not eat dinner <laughs> and then have to try to sleep for six to eight hours hungry and then to work out the next morning depleted, <laughs> that just sounds, it just, I mean, it just sounds incredibly unpleasant for what sound like marginal gains, if, you know, if anything at all, particularly for your typical age grouper. So yeah, eat dinner people. <laughs> I, I think it's an excellent point. You know, everybody's looking to try and get some kind of edge somewhere, but to what end, right? I mean, why make yourself more miserable? Training out is hard work. Like, just don't don't make it harder. <laughs> like, I, I get it. Everybody, every, listen, I like that you and I both have success. We both like to win. We both work really hard. I'm not going to do something like this. I mean, especially when it doesn't seem to work, right. but uh, and we have no evidence even, for even, women. <laughs> correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 kind of interesting how there are so many of these nutritional kind of strategies that people have come up with, and a lot of them are based on interesting theoreticals. And this one, like I said, there there's been some really interesting studies that have shown that you know the theory is borne out. There was a good study from 2018, Maximizing Cellular Adaptation to Endurance Exercise in Skeletal Muscle. Really, really nice review. Talked about all of this ideas about how you can change the way your cells metabolize different fuels by doing all kinds of different things and looking specifically at which genes get upregulated. Really, really fascinating stuff. But at the end of the day, it comes back to this idea. I, I've talked about this before, you know, like the, the disease oriented outcome, the patient oriented outcome. Here you have these markers, all of these intracellular markers, all of these intracellular processes that change, but the performance metrics, which is what we're really interested in, those don't change. And it seems to me like it's, it's a, it's a little bit, I don't know, highbrowed, maybe a little too much in the, in the ivory tower, some of this stuff. And in, in reality, like you said, we're all age groupers just trying to enjoy ourselves and depriving ourselves of, of food <laughs> for the sake of, 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 of a maybe is, is just to me not worth it. So, well, and you and I were talking, I think uh, you and I were talking before we started recording. I mean, we work with a lot of age group athletes and we see a lot of age group athletes come and go. And, you know, almost on cue, you see athletes who, are either trying to lose some weight or they're trying to get that tiny gain, you know, and they start to limit calories. They start to mess around with, with carbohydrates. And then you can see in their training peaks, you know, they get tired, they get grouchy and numbers start to go down. If you have a power meter, that's where you see it first, right? They're unable to complete workouts. And, you know, you're, you're saying, are you watching your nutrition? You know, are you making sure you're eating enough? You know, all these things. And then lo and behold, you're saying this right before the call, you know, yeah. And then this athlete came back to me and said, wow, I feel so much better when I, you know, eat carbs and I have a piece of toast and I have, you know, my pancakes or my whatever. 
And, you know, I think it is so tempting to try to chase that extra, whatever it is, five pounds, or you see a study like this, or you see something, someone doing something, and you're, you chase that. But at the end of the day, we need to fuel. <laughs> we need carbs. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It, it's so tough, right? I mean, it's a, yeah, it, it's it's a difficult, it's a really difficult. We all want, we all do this because we want to be healthy. We want to be a better version of ourselves. And and for many, that does mean changing our body a little bit. And that can mean weight loss. And and weight loss over time is a good thing. I think the the where people can get hung up is if they try to do it too quickly and they do that by skipping on meals or skipping on carbs. And we've talked about it several times in several different ways. We've talked about Ozempic, we've talked about carbohydrate restriction, keto, all of those things. And at the end of the day, if your main priority is weight loss, then training for triathlon is probably not the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. But if your main priority is to train for triathlon and get into good shape and enjoy multi-sport, fuel to do well, and eventually your metabolism will improve you will lose weight, but it's just not going to be something that's going to happen super quick. But you get so much benefit from the better fitness, just from feeling better about yourself, about doing all of these great things, that that should be enough at least to, to hold you over until the weight starts to come off. And it will. It just takes time. 100%. We're in agreement. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, I think that's another interesting discussion on another interesting medical topic. If you have a question that you'd like us to consider answering on the medical mailbag, I hope that you'll send it in to us as a question. You could do so by sending me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or you can join the private Facebook group that is found on Facebook, of course, where you can answer the three very easy questions. I will grant you access to the group. You can join the conversation there and submit a question. In fact, I know I have a question that I am looking into at this very moment that was submitted by a reader or a listener who is now a reader of that Facebook group. Juliet, thank you so much for joining me today yet again, and we'll see you in another couple of weeks. Thanks so much, Jeff. I am really excited about my guest on the podcast today. I say that every time, but well, you know what? I'm always excited. I'm very lucky to have such great guests. Dr. Daya Grant is a certified mental performance consultant, neuroscientist, and yoga meditation teacher who helps athletes train their mind for elevated performance. She also writes for her own blog called NeuroSweat, as well as for Triathlete Magazine, which is where I first came across her because she writes the articles that I am always looking for and always most interested in reading. Daya is based in Los Angeles, where she loves to swim, bike, run, and hike with her husband and their two young sons. I have managed to get her to settle down just long enough to have a chat with me today. Daya, do you mind if I call you Daya? I should have asked please that before. Do. No, please. <laughs> Daya, welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. I first reached out to you after reading your article about clutch and flow state, something that I've been really interested in as a triathlete myself and as a triathlon coach. 
elaborate, if you will, or describe what you, if you will, for the listeners, what do you mean by clutch and flow states, especially as they pertain to triathlon? It's fascinating because we use these terms a lot, I think. I hear them a lot just in common conversation, and there is a lot of overlap between flow and clutch states, but they're actually two distinct states. So essentially, we're talking about optimal psychological states that, in very technical terms, feels really good. <laughs> so the the flow state is the one that's probably been researched the most. It was first described most fully by the psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and he wrote several books, did a lot of research on what flow is, both in and outside of sport. And it's really where there's an absence of negative thoughts, where you are completely immersed in whatever it is that you're doing. The sense of time is altered. You don't really have a sense of space. If you're a baseball player and there's a ball coming towards you, it may look like it's the size of a beach ball and it's moving really, really slow if you're in flow state. So it's so easy to hit that ball. If you are on the bike and you're cranking up a hill, it may feel effortless. Like, yeah, this is hard and I've got the power. I'm strong. I'm not thinking about anything else. You are just, you're in flow. You're in the zone. Self-consciousness really dissolves. That's a key distinguishing feature between flow and clutch. So we can talk more about flow, but it's it's a deeply fulfilling state. And clutch is also fulfilling. There is more ego involvement. It's very purpose-driven. So a clutch state happens typically when you're in a pressure situation and all of a sudden you've got to crank it up a notch. You dial everything in and you just push, 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 and you push, and you feel like you have this extra gear. It can happen most frequently at the end of a time trial, at the end of a race, um, when you're in the pool and they're <laughs> they're closing the lanes at a certain time, and you've got to get the the end of your workout done. It happens in those pressure situations, so it is a little bit different, and the research. As I said, there's more research with flow state in the neuroscience and psychology fields, but there is some increasing evidence to show that there are triggers that you can use to give yourself a better chance of getting into one of these states. Doesn't guarantee it. That'll be the, you know, the, the magic pill one day, but, but we're definitely getting closer. Can you achieve a flow state if you don't get a desired outcome? Can you be in a flow state and and just have a mediocre outcome? Can you be in a clutch state and not hit that home run or or win that time trial? Yes, that's such a good question. 100%. It is all about what's happening in the moment and it's completely unattached from any sort of result. So there Sure, there may be times when you get into flow and you PR. There may be other times where you're in flow and it's not even a, a race. You're just out there training. Or something else happens down the road and you're not feeling great. But there, 
there is this element of it does tend to result in improved performance, but it's not a causative effect. With clutch state, yeah, it's the same thing. You you can you can dial it up a notch and still not dial it up quite enough to get the result that perhaps you were searching for. I think a lot of people can get kind of confused by this idea that you can be in this mental state without thinking about it. And I kind of bring it to my own experience. Like I was at work yesterday. I'm an emergency physician. It was a very busy shift. We had two very, very sick crashing patients. And I don't necessarily stop to think, oh, I'm in a flow state. But I just, in retrospect, can recognize that, you know what? I did things without thinking. I did, I, I acted subcon- almost subconsciously and I just went through the motions that years of experience and training have gotten me to. And I just did all the things that needed to be done in order to get the patients through these crises. And afterwards, now really, because I didn't think about it at the time, but I, I can sit here now and having this conversation with you and recognize, you know what? I was in a flow state at that point. I probably even, when things really hit the fan, I probably even reacted in a clutch way in order to, to make sure that nothing really went awry. So I think that flow and clutch states can exist in different aspects of our life. I think one thing that I want to ask you though is how much of being in a flow or clutch state is predicated on having the ability in order to get there. In other words, so for me in my work example, I don't think a junior person like my residents or my students would be in those flow or clutch states. For them, it was probably much more panic and we we got through it together. But in a triathlon, somebody who maybe hasn't trained quite as hard, are they going to be able to get into a flow state if if they're suffering on the day? Can they reach a flow state if they haven't really put in the work? Or is is a flow state achievable by anybody? It just looks different differently. That's an excellent question. To answer the latter, it's achievable by anybody. However, there has to be a high level of challenge for the task and a high level of skill to achieve that task. So using your example from your workday yesterday, yes, you, as you mentioned, you have a high level of skill when you're in those situations. And a junior person would not, they would have gone into panic for sure. So your skill matched that high challenge. If you didn't have as intense a day and there weren't, crashes happening. There were fewer patients coming in. There was a good chance that you wouldn't have entered into a flow state or had a clutch performance because the challenge just wasn't enough to meet your skill level. On the other hand, for a beginner triathlete, they can absolutely get into flow. They just have to have the right circumstances. So if you throw a triathlete who's done maybe one sprint into an Ironman race, no, they're not going to find flow. That's going to be panic. That's going to be pure suffering. However, if you give them something that's in their growth zone, we call it, so a little bit outside of their comfort zone, that challenges them but doesn't destroy them, (laughs) then Yes, there is a chance that they can get into flow. And there are other things that can serve as triggers that they'll want to be mindful of, like 
You have to eliminate distractions. You have to be focused. That's a big part of it. You have to go through a period of resistance when you really are cognitively engaged before you can just enter into that kind of easeful state. And a lot of times when we're just starting out in something, when we hit resistance, we back off. So we don't actually give ourselves the chance to get past that and get into flow. But yeah, it's achievable for anybody. And I I love that question because I love challenging athletes. And I work with non-athletes sometimes too. I love challenging everyone with, can you think of a time ever in your life when you felt some of these, we'll call them symptoms <laughs> of flow state? What What maybe were you doing? Were you in nature? Were you writing? Were you giving a talk? There are most likely moments that everyone has experienced where they've they've had this. And it may have, might have been momentary and they may not have felt like they were in flow in the moment, partly because they didn't know that that was a psychological state. So now that we're educating more and more people about this, I think it's going to be really cool to see athletes saying, oh, yeah, oh, okay, interesting. I think I've experienced that even just momentarily. It's an endorphin rush. I, I That's the only thing I can compare it to because that's – and again, I don't know that I recognize it in the moment. I seem to recognize it more after the fact. But you, when you get through it – and I've had it happen in races as well. I've, I've had good fortune in the last couple of years to have some races go really well. And when they're going well – it's an it's an endorphin high. It's like everything is just clicking. It's all going well. And for me, anyways, I feel like it's all related to trusting yourself and recognizing that you've put in the work and it's all coming to fruition at that moment. But I still feel as though I've achieved that state purely be just by falling into it. Help me and help others understand how to purposely get there? How, how do we make ourselves get to that flow state? Because I got to tell you, it is a wonderful feeling when you're there. So how do I actually find my way there purposely rather than just by fluke? <laughs> just by accident. That's, that's, that's the key. That's what we're all trying to really figure out. But there are definitely some things that you can try. And I'm a big, I have a science background and I love when athletes can be the experimenters of their own lives and really just test some things out. Like, let's see if when I do this before a training session or before a race, I have something that maybe sounds like what Di is talking about, this flow state thing. So there are certain things that that you can try. I actually want to touch on clutch first because I think this is almost easier to wrap your head around. So you need three things to give yourself a chance of getting into some sort of clutch performance zone. One is you need a pressure situation that can be manufactured. So a lot of times coaches will do everything they can to make an athlete feel like they're in a pressure situation. That can work if it's done well. You need a specific goal too. And three, you need a clear path to achieve that goal. So you need a plan. If you have those three things, you're already ahead of the game. There's a good chance that you can just lock it in. Flow state uh, is a little bit trickier, but you do need to make sure that 
the challenge and the skill level to meet that challenge are high, like I mentioned. You need to eliminate distractions. So presence is key for achieving flow. And you cannot be present if you are attending to everything that's coming across your attentional field. So what's important now, WIN acronym, you have to prioritize what's important in the moment. So if you are wanting to maybe access flow a little bit in, um, let's just say, do you have a race coming up? Not for a little while. It's still a few months away. Well, we'll say in a few months, you would love to experience some flow. You leading up to it, dial in a pre-performance routine. Now you, you're a veteran at this. You have a system for what needs to be done nutritionally, in terms of your gear, physically, warming up, all that. You have some sort of routine. The more you can dial that in, the more likely you will be to eliminate the distractions and then focus on what needs to be done, which is, ironically, surrendering a little bit. Like you said, allowing your expertise, allowing your experience, allowing your training to come forth. And so, so I love, I love what you're saying there because I, I think that the, I know from my own past that I find success in races and likely flow as a result or part, not as a result, but maybe leading to the success when I am calmest before a race, because I have done my routine, I have preached to my athletes, to my listeners over and over again, worry about the things that you can control and everything else is noise and just put that away and don't even pay attention. And you are saying exactly that. Eliminate distractions. Focus on the things that you have to worry about. Get to you to your event and just do your routine and just set yourself up for success. What's important now? I love that. That that is really and I, I I've just kind of develop this on my own and not recognizing that this is the ingredients that I needed. I want to go back to the clutch thing just for a second, though, because I thought that was really interesting as well. You said that for clutch states, you need a pressure situation, you needed a plan, and I missed it was a second thing. A specific goal. A specific goal. I can imagine how you you can introduce that in training. I can imagine how that shows up in racing. Why the specific goal so much? I guess without the goal, you can't have the plan. So I can imagine the pressure situation brings with it because the I guess they're all intertwined, right? Uh, that's kind yes. of where that – okay. Yeah, I can see yes. that. Yeah, the goal contributes to the pressure situation. So it's – you can feel like you're under a lot of pressure. But if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish, that's going to manifest as freaking out. (laughs) And why is it that some people, I mean, we think about clutch performers. I'm a, you mentioned baseball before. I'm a big baseball fan. The Red Sox are my team. David Ortiz was the consummate clutch performer. This guy would come up in the most unbelievable situations and he could always be counted on to do what needed to be done. Why are some people so much better at, at clutch than than others? Uh, some people will wilt under the pressure and other people, I mean, what are they doing that makes them so much better as clutch performers? Hmm. And how can we learn from them? 
It's such a great question. I love watching clutch performers, right? We all do. It's just, there's an element of composure, of confidence, of centeredness, all these C words. (laughs) And they are just able to execute. And because I am a neuroscientist, I do strongly believe that there is a neural mechanism underlying how they're able to do that so consistently. I think there is something about David Ortiz's brain that allowed him to do that. Now, how do we get there? There's definitely some training that can happen. Uh, Neuroplasticity is our brain's ability to rewire change structurally and functionally in response to stimuli. So training, mental training. The more we can get in the reps of performing well under pressure, the more confidence we gain, and then the more we're able to repeat that down the road. The the challenge is most of us don't give ourselves enough opportunities for that to develop. Because we're scared or because it's uncomfortable or because we don't know exactly how to focus, how to calm our nervous system enough. We don't even know what our sweet spot is. So every person has an optimal sweet spot sweet spot where they are physiologically aroused just enough to execute a task and do it well, but they're not so stressed that they become distracted and unfocused and overwhelmed and all of that. So As athletes, we have to take responsibility for understanding what our own sweet spot is and then experimenting with different things before we perform, after we perform, to debrief. That's going to help us get into that sweet spot more often. So David Ortiz's sweet spot was those challenge situations. And if we asked him on a scale from 1 to 10, with 1 being your body is completely relaxed. Mentally, you're incredibly calm. And 10 is you're losing it. You're incredibly stressed. Where are you in those moments? My guess is he would say something like four, three or four. That takes a lot of practice to be able to get down to that zone when there's so much going on around you. And it's all about self-regulation. It's all about emotional control. It's all about redirecting our mind to where it needs to go instead of allowing it to zoom out and pay attention to everything. So there are, this is, this is why the mental game is so exciting to me and to you. And it's just, there are techniques that we can all implement and try and train so that we can develop the skills to show up when we need to show up. I find it really fascinating. I've had this conversation with uh, mental performance coaches in the past. I've worked with a mental performance coach. And for the longest time, I struggled to get to the top of my age group. And the coach I worked with used to tell me all the time, you know, you have to believe you can win. And I said, well, how do I believe I can win if I've never won? <laughs> and I, 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 I ask you the same kind of question. What comes first? Does David Ortiz believe he can hit that home run or does he have to hit the home run first before he can believe it? Because I feel like if you go in thinking every time, oh, 
I mean, anybody can go in thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to win today, but only one person is going to win. And it seems to me that going in and thinking you can win when there's really no realistic chance that you like I could go and stand at the plate and face a pitcher and say, oh, I can hit a home run. And if it's not realistic, it doesn't matter. So I'm just, you know, I I think about this often. I did not perform as a clutch performer growing up as a youth playing ice hockey or baseball or any of these things. I have now come to the point that I'm a little better at my clutch performances in triathlon, but only because I've actually had success. So the success I've had has allowed me to now have the confidence to be more of a clutch performer. So is it like that for everybody? Or do, is there just some people who are imbued, like you said, their brains are different, they're imbued with this confidence, and they are just naturally clutch performers? Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of good questions kind of in there. Um, first of all, no, it is not enough to just believe. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> I I do think that's an important piece. I think having a vision that may be completely unrealistic is important for one purpose, and that is to motivate you to get up tomorrow to train. That's it. <laughs> so when I work with athletes, I really do encourage them to have that vision, like dream, go wild with it, but only do that 1% of the time. The 99% of the time you spend training your brain, you're focusing on what the path is to make your next incremental step. And when you do that and you accomplish that next thing, that then tells your brain, okay, I can do this. You do that a few more times and now you are strengthening those connections in your brain. Then when you push yourself a little bit more to try to get to that next finish line, metaphorical finish line, then you you push, you get to that one, you get a little bit more confidence, and then you push some more and you set a new goal. But goal setting, I think, I mean, when I say the phrase goal setting to an athlete, I get varied responses. Some athletes just flat out roll their eyes and say, I don't like, I don't want to do that. And I think part of the problem is there has been this messaging of you've got to believe it to achieve it. And sure, that's that's true to a certain extent, but that is such a small piece of the puzzle. Confidence is is a tricky thing, and you need some wins to build your confidence. And it's just this cycle that builds upon itself. So yes, I'm all about what you can do to to kind of knock down any sort of self-doubt, because that can definitely get in your way. But you also have to be careful of not having, not spending too much time in that kind of dreamy, I believe I can place and not working the process. Yeah, you've got to put the work in to be able to achieve your beliefs. Otherwise, you can believe all you want. You're never going to get there. Yes, yes, yes. I think I know the answer to this, but it seems to me that it's more possible to achieve flow than it is to achieve clutch. Uh, I think that most people can probably get to both, but it seems if we're going to strive for anything, we should probably strive to achieve flow and then work on clutch afterwards. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. You know, I think there is a reason why there's more research on flow. Um, 
I think there's so much benefit from experiencing the flow state that is longer lasting than perhaps experiencing clutch state. And that's probably why there's part of the reason why there's more research there. Um, but, you know, clutch, like I said, is involves the ego more. It involves more cognitive processing. Like there's more effort involved. And that just, if you, if you just think about doing that over and over and over, that, that can be really exhausting unless you're someone like Ortiz who just can naturally do that. Flow, on the other hand, is really effortless and your self, this self concept dissolves. You have almost no ego involvement. Like it is just, I like to compare it to a bliss state. For me, bliss really resonates. For a lot of other people, it's like, no, that doesn't resonate with me at all. That seems way too out there. But it is, it's like something more than happiness. It's deep satisfaction. It's deep fulfillment. And I, I think that anyone who's pursuing sport and pursuing personal development is after that is after that feeling of, okay, yeah, I'm really, like, I just feel really good. I feel really, I don't know if satisfies the right word, but just blissful. <laughs> like, everything is just as it should be in this moment. Like, don't, we all want more of that, whether it's in sport or in life? Yeah, I I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, it, it is a very satisfying state. It's not necessarily that you are satisfied, but it is satisfying. And I know that when I have achieved it, the, the few times that I have achieved flow state, it's not something, as I mentioned earlier, that you're necessarily aware of at that moment. You sort of realize it, I think, after the fact that, wow, this is like, this was a really, really almost peaceful, serene kind of state to be in while you were racing because everything was going well. I, I, I know I used to race, I used to race and I used to have these like continual self check-ins. I'd be like, okay, how am I doing? How's the pace? How's the leg feeling? How's, how's everything feeling? And when I'm in a flow state, I don't do that. I just do. And, and it's this idea of not thinking, of just everything melts away and you just do. And clutch state, I know exactly what you mean about it being much more intentional and much more cognitively involved because when you are in that last, okay, I've got this last mile to go. I have to get under this certain time I, or, or I need to beat this person by this amount of seconds. You are much more intentional. You're much more focused. It is much more challenging, both physically and mentally. I completely understand this. And so if you're listening, Listening to this segment and going, what the heck are they talking about? I want you to think about this notion about when you're doing it. It doesn't have to be racing. It can be any aspect in your life. I mentioned my own work. Uh, it could be whatever you're doing. Those moments when you just do, you just whatever it is that you're doing, you just do it, and it's it's not hard because you're just doing it because you're relying on everything that you've put into this before and it's just happening without you necessarily putting any effort into it that's flow state and it's very relaxing even though physically it might be hard it's just very relaxing and clutch state is when you are 
focused on a deadline, you're focused on a finish line, you're focused on whatever, and you're really having to put in that extra hard effort, both mentally and physically to do it. And you then you pull it off. And I I really, I've just been fascinated by this. I I was fascinated by your article. If you haven't seen Dr. Grant's article, I highly recommend you look for it on Triathlete. It was published back in December, I think, right? That's when I saw it. That sounds right. I lose track. Actually, no, it was June of 2023. I came across it in December. That's, that's, I missed it for six months. It's unacceptable. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm it, glad I it, found it when I did. You did. And it was the perfect timing. That's just the way it happened to be for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I am much more attuned to all of your articles. I just recently read one on neuroplasticity related to exercise, and perhaps we will uh, have a chat about that uh, at another time because I would uh, like nothing more than to have you back and uh, chat again because this has been really a fascinating conversation. Dr. Daya Grant is a certified mental performance consultant. She's a neuroscientist, a yoga and meditation teacher. She works with athletes and non-athletes on helping them find their best selves. She has a blog called Neuro sweat. I will have links to all of these things in the show notes. Daya, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh my goodness. I did too. Thank you so, so much for having me. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.